Well, good morning, Chili Bible. How are we doing this morning? Pastor Jim and I have spent most of the past week uh, together at a pastor's conference called uh, Together for the Gospel. It's one of the largest gatherings of good, solid evangelical pastors of which I am personally aware. That I think there were about 8,000 of us there in this arena and uh, meeting in various places around the city of Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, and I, th- I think I can speak for both of us and say that we both received some helpful rebuke and correction, uh, some good instruction, uh, some refreshment for our hearts, and uh, renewal in our calling to serve the Lord as pastors and overseers in His church. And so on behalf of Jim and I, I'd like to just express our thanks uh, for making it possible for he and I to go and get away for a few days and kind of soak in God's Word and... Um, worship him along with other men who are trying to carry out faithfully the same task uh, to which we have uh, been appointed here. So thank you for that. We had just a fantastic time. Uh, There were nine plenary messages. I think I listened to all but one of those and uh, also some breakout sessions and obviously a lot of time to uh, visit with old friends and make some new ones and, and, uh, and really uh, sing to the Lord and 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 soak in uh, His Word. Um, you know, one of the challenges of being a pastor is that um, no one preaches to you live, uh, <laughs> and uh, and so you get an opportunity to. You know, I can I can listen to sermons online and you know over CD and that kind of thing, and I do that a bit as does Jim, but. But um, but to actually sit and listen to somebody else deliver a message they have developed to give you is, is a unique privilege and is a lot of fun. So, again, thanks. Uh, this morning is the last, this not the last, the second to the last message I'll be doing in this series on the cross and what Jesus was accomplishing in his death and resurrection. And so by way of getting started, I want to just ask you if you've ever made any enemies. Raise your hand if you've ever made an enemy. <laughs> okay. Anybody that maybe they were an acquaintance, maybe they were once upon a time a friend, uh, maybe that you were never friends, maybe you were always enemies, um, but you have either grievously offended somebody um, or your, and your actions have ruined the relationship. Or maybe you are the offended party, and now every time you see that person, you know what I'm talking about? You see them from across the room, and it's not some enchanted evening. You get that tight feeling in the pit of your stomach. My enemy is over there. Maybe it's an old girlfriend or an old boyfriend, an ex-husband, an ex-wife, an ex-friend former co-worker, a former boss. But every time you hear their name, you get, that, you get that pain that you feel in your soul like a scab has been ripped off. And for the thousandth time, you feel that pain that he or she inflicted on you or maybe the pain uh, that you inflicted on them that you can't make right again can't go back and undo it. Now, let me ask another question. This will probably get fewer hands. Have you ever made a friend out of a former enemy? Has that ever happened? A few times. 
Sometimes that happens. Normally, once we've made enemies, we stay enemies. Amen? You ever made peace with someone that you were formerly at war with? And the reason I bring all this up is because the Bible tells us, believe it or not, that you and me are naturally enemies of God. That we hate him, and in his just and holy way, he hates us in return because we are sinners. And we are at war with him because we not only are born at war with him, because we are born in possession of a sin nature, but then we advance our cause of being at war with God every time that we choose, as part of our possession of a sinful nature, to act on our sinful nature and to continue our rebellion. And the Bible tells us that God is literally at war with us as sinners. And we are under his just wrath because our sin is a high crime against God who is good and just and holy. But, and this is, this is the big contrastive conjunction, okay? I'll not say it's a big but. That means something different. But uh, this, is a, this is a big contrast here. The um, Bible also tells us this, that, that God in his holy love has chosen to attempt to make peace with us. And that he has done so through offering his son. And this is what the Bible calls reconciliation. That God, who is at war with us, and we are at war with him, but God, because he loves us, he is holy, his wrath is just against us and against our sin, but God is also a God of holy love. And so he attempts to make peace with us, and he will be at peace with every person who will trust in Christ and make peace with him. And so I want to look at a passage that talks about reconciliation today and the reconciliation that God brings through Christ. And um, I want you to turn over in your New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, If you have your Bible, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you have an ESV study Bible like this, it's page 2230. Uh, If you don't, uh, that's okay. Uh, find 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 11, and you'll follow along as, as I read here. This is what Paul says. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, this chapter is a, is about this chapter in in uh, in Second Corinthians is about two kinds of reconciliation. 
And one is the reconciliation between God and his people. And we're going to get to that. We'll see that in this text a little later. But the other is reconciliation between Paul, the apostle, and the church at Corinth. Now, the church at Corinth, if you're not familiar with it, if you've never read First or Second Corinthians, um, they were Paul's problem child, if you will. Uh, they were the church that he wrote a letter uh, in First Corinthians. Most of the letter is rebuke because he's having to tell them some very, very serious things like, by the way, you should stop getting drunk at communion. Okay, now that sounds funny because we think should be sort of obvious, right? He's having to tell them, do not visit the temple prostitutes anymore now that you are believers in Jesus Christ. Do not sleep with your stepmother. Ooh. Okay, these are things that are going on that are live issues in the Corinthian church. And so he has written them this whole long letter, 1 Corinthians, and rebuked them. Now, I don't know if you've ever been rebuked personally by anybody where they came up to you and said, you need to knock it off on whatever the following list of behavior is. But generally speaking, when you do that, the person does not automatically think, Shazam, I have been unholy. I never knew this. I should I should I need to repent. That's not the reaction in total that the Corinthian church had. Now in now many of the people within it did. They went, guys, we've been screwing up here. We need to change some things about what we are doing. But there were a whole host of other people within the Corinthian church who went, Where does Paul get off? Who does he think he is? And and on top of that, there were a bunch of teachers who came in after Paul who, you know, they were in from out of town. You know, after Paul had established the church, they wanted to come in and teach in it because there was money to be made. The church at Corinth was wealthy. And there was good money to be made. And so they, they kind of fostered and encouraged that idea that, well, you know, Paul, he's, he's kind of, he's off about half a bubble at least, out of plumb. And, uh, you know, you, you got to be careful with Paul. And so, so he writes Second Corinthians to commend them for some of the changes that they have made, but also as a way of making peace between him and this church, who are not all big fans, even though he planted their church, even though he was an apostle, even though the letter that he wrote came with the full authority of the Word of God, inspired by the Spirit of God, they're still at, they're still partly at war with him. And one of the things that is being questioned is Paul's motives, and so he's trying to mend fences with this group of people and to put into practice the kind of reconciliation between him and them that he is going to talk about God doing between God and us. Uh, so the first, in, in verse 11, he's going to talk about his motivation. And Paul's actually got three different motivations he highlights, and you can look at them in your Bible. 
The first one, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And a lot of times people want to soften that down. They want to take, you know, passages that talk about the fear of the Lord, and they want to just bring that down to something like, well, it means reverential awe. Okay, well, that's not bad. But here's the thing. I think fear is a pretty accurate description because everyone is going to face judgment of one kind or another. Amen? Everyone. The Bible makes that very, very clear. Uh, in fact, in Revelation 20, what you see is this great white throne. And John writes, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And the men were, and people were judged according to what was, was written about them in the books. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were cast into the lake of fire, which burns with sulfur forever and ever. That's judgment. Amen? That would be scary. Now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, guess what? You will not be there. But you will be at another judgment, which Paul calls in verse 10 of this chapter, the judgment seat of Christ. And it says that we will be, so that each one will receive what he what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In other words, you will stand before God, and there will be an evaluation process. Now, I used to get nervous when I had to take a test. But here you are going to be standing in front of the God of the universe, and that will be a joyous thing because you'll be in the presence of God. But on the other hand, you're going to be evaluated for how you have lived out your Christian life. And that test is going to matter. You know, just like in the parable that Jesus tells about the talents, you know, the one got five talents, and the one got two, and the one got one. And in the Christian life, you definitely, whatever, however many talents you get, however many talents you get, Jim and I talked this week about five-talent guys. We're convinced that neither one of us are those. <laughs> okay. I think I might be a two-talent guy, maybe, on my better days, probably one. Because <laughs> we were in the presence of some guys who can really, really um, serve the Lord with their fantastic gifts, and we're like, that guy is a five-talent guy. You know, D.A. Carson, if you get to go hear him, he's a five-talent guy. He's written like 75 books, <laughs> something like that. You know, I mean, just incredible talent that this guy has, right? But you're, regardless of how many you have, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you're going to receive your reward from God. And the idea is, is that you want to stand before God and hear, well done, now good and faithful servant. Amen? You did not want to hear what the one servant in the parable hears, which is, you wicked servant. Don't want to hear that. And Paul says that part of his motivation is to please the Lord because he knows that he's going to stand one day before the Lord and have to give account for his life. And he says, therefore, knowing what it is to fear the Lord, we persuade other people. Because part of his motivation is realizing that evaluation day is coming. You know, I'm in training for a, a half marathon. Now, I might not look like it. But believe it or not, 
I can actually run at this point 10 miles without stopping. Okay? Now, now, I'm not fast, but I am persistent. <laughs> okay? I am slow, but I am persistent. You might not even consider what I do to be running. <laughs> but I can go faster than you can walk. So, in any case, um, evaluation day is coming. On May 5th, I'm going to run 13.1 miles, hopefully, and not die at the end, right? Um, but evaluation day is coming, and so you make steps to do that which is going to lead to a successful outcome on evaluation day, right? Trust me, I'm, I, do not, I do not think, hmm, I think I'll run 10 miles today. That sounds like fun. Let me just tell you, the fun stops for me right about mile number five. You know, I, I get into it, and oh, this feels great. Oh, this is great. Got a little survivor on the radio, you know. I'm chugging along. Eye of the tiger. All that, right? Sounds great. Okay. But the fun stops at mile number five. It's over. Then it's just like, I just have to pound this out. And there are going to be days, just like there were days for Paul, where the fun is not there. But you still are motivated to serve the Lord because evaluation day is coming. Paul gives another motivation. He says this. He says, look, I'm doing this not for me, but for you. He says, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. In other words, I'm doing this ministry so that you can be proud of us. Because what we're doing, we're doing not for outward appearance, but so that we can serve the Lord. Because he knows what's in our heart. And and one of the accusations against Paul is that he's actually crazy. And, you know, Paul gives us some credence a little bit. He says, maybe we are out of our mind. After all, who but an insane person would think, you know, I, let's see, I got, I got stoned in Lystra. I got shipwrecked. I got beaten in about every town that I've been to. Um, I've spent a lot of time in prison. Um, let's see, what are we doing tomorrow? Well, we're preaching the gospel again. <laughs> it's going great so far, so why not, right? Um, you know, he's had to be let out of town in a basket at points. And people are saying, you know, I don't know about that, Paul. Paul says, look, if we are out of our mind, then we are doing it for God. And if we are, in, if we are sane, it's for you and it's for your benefit. Paul says, even if I'm crazy, I'm crazy for the spread of the gospel. And it's and the reason I am is because it brings benefit to the people who hear it. And most of all, Paul finds his motivation in the love of Christ, which controls him. If you look at the text here, Paul says, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. For we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And sometimes, you know, if you if you ever take Greek class, you know, you go to Moody or whatever and decide, hey, I want to learn to read the New Testament in the original language. 
And that's really fun if you can do that. Um, you, you'll get it, one of the debates you'll get into is, well, when he says the love of Christ controls us, it's grammatically ambiguous. Does that mean that Christ's love for Paul controls his behavior, or does that mean Paul's love for Christ controls and motivates his behavior? Yes. Very good. Somebody knows the answer already. You only have to take the class. Um, the answer is yes. Jesus Christ initiates his relationship with us by his love, and his love for us transforms us. Amen? And it transforms our life, and it controls and shapes what kind of people we become, right? But as we respond to God's love revealed to us in Christ by his Holy Spirit to us, then in gratitude we respond so that the love of Christ controls us in response to God as well, right? So which is it? Yes. Uh, it's like asking me if I want chocolate, ice cream, or vanilla. Yes. <laughs> um, and what, what Paul means is this, that when Jesus died for us, he, we died to our old selves and our old lives, and Jesus gave us new life controlled by his love and his spirit, so we don't live for ourselves anymore. Right? We don't live for ourselves anymore. You are not your own. You've been bought. You belong to Jesus. And so part of our motivation for what we do, like Paul, ought to be the fact that Jesus controls my life now. He bought me. And whether it's his love that controls me working through my heart by his spirit, or whether it is me responding to his love and doing in gratitude that which uh, the Spirit motivates me to do. Either way, my life is no longer mine because it is hidden with Christ in God. And, and he says, look, we don't live for ourselves anymore. We live to share the gospel and to bring out the message of reconciliation to other people. Now, in the next uh, two verses, Paul is going to talk about the results of the gospel. Now, look at these here. Verse 16 and 17. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, there's a couple things that happen to you when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, when you experience reconciliation with God through faith in Christ, there's a couple things that happen to you. One of the things that happens is this, is that your perspective on other people is transformed. Just as your perspective about Jesus is transformed, your perspective on other people is transformed. And Paul is pointing that out. He says, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. And what's he mean? What he means by that is this. When, before you're a believer in Christ, you might divide society into lots of neat little categories, right? And you might think in terms of black people and white people and Indians and, uh, and Chinese and South Americans and Canadians and Iranians and whatever. And you might have certain groups of people that you think, well, 
I'll go to them. They're kind of like me. I'll, I'll be friends with this group of people. They have a similar socioeconomic background and culture to me. But Paul says this. Paul says that when Jesus Christ owns you as he does, when the love of Christ really controls you because of the power of the gospel in your life, then your perspective on everybody is changed. As an American... The Iranians are my enemy. As a Christian, these are people for whom Jesus Christ died and to whom the gospel needs carried. Amen? As an American, anybody who is a radical Muslim terrorist is somebody that I ought to run away from. Or if I'm in the military, grab a rifle and shoot. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, this is someone that I need to carry the gospel to. Why? Well, that's the other side of it. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Anyone. Does that include terrorists? Yep. In fact, the writer of this book, as I heard this week, He's a terrorist. This is, you know what Paul's job was before he was a believer in Jesus Christ? Go from house to house, persecute, murder, and imprison people who believe in Jesus. What do we call that? Well, today we'd call that a terrorist. Paul says anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Does that include people who don't look like me? Yes. Does that include people who aren't from the same nation as me? Yes. Does that include people who want to kill me? Yes. Does that include people from a different religious background from me? Yes. Does that include people who are poorer than me? Yes. Does that include people who are richer than me? Yes. Does that include people who speak a different language than me? Yes. Anyone who is a Believer in Jesus Christ, anyone who is in Christ, Paul says, is a new creation. The gospel has power. And one of the things I was reminded this week, one of the speakers was a guy named David Platt who wrote a book called Radical. It's a good book. Or at least he's a good speaker. Uh, And if what's in the book is what he said, it's great stuff. He said this, he said, you know, the thing is, guys, is that we are too timid in sharing the gospel with people. And I think he's exactly right. Because we forget that the gospel has the power to transform anyone. Everyone who hears and believes is transformed by the power of the gospel at work in their heart and their life. Does that include murderers? Ask Mark. He can probably tell you about ones he gets letters from want to get a Bible so they can hear more about Jesus. Does that include criminals? You bet. Does that include terrorists? You bet. Does that include people who are currently your enemies? Yes. Anyone. And then Paul says this. He goes on. He talks about the ministry of the messenger in these last few verses. 
He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and trusting and, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's all this? Well, it's everything he's been talking about up to now, from the transforming power of the gospel to the reasons that we have to share it with people. And because of everything God has done for us, we, like Paul, have been given the ministry of reconciliation that he described. What's the ministry of reconciliation? Well, first, it begins with a person who has himself or herself been reconciled to God through his death and resurrection. And then that person has a message to proclaim that in Christ, God is reconciling people to himself. In other words, hey, you who are sinners, God is in the business of making peace with you. In fact, he has already done everything that is necessary for you to be at peace with God and to know that when you die, as all of us one day will, the statistics are all in one out of one dies. And all of us are going to one day stand before God. And the issue is where you are going to then spend eternity after you stand before him. And if you die at war with God, there is no second opportunity to believe. It is appointed to a man once to die and after that to face judgment. Be reconciled to God. That's our message. Go out. Be reconciled to God. That's what we proclaim. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That God desires for the entire world to come to him and to be at peace with him. The entire world. The entire world. You ever wonder why we spend so much of our energy talking about unreached people groups when we talk about missions? It's because there are 2 billion people in the world today who have no believers among them, no churches, and have no opportunity to hear the message of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. God was in Christ dying on the cross for you to make peace between you and God. And once we have made peace, here's what happens. Once we make peace with God, God gives us a job. He appoints us as ambassadors to him. What's an ambassador do? An ambassador goes on behalf of someone else to deliver a message. And so whether you're Hillary Clinton or Madeleine Albright or... or um, James Baker or whoever, you're an ambassador. And you represent God to a sinful world. You go back to the people from whom you were taken and say, hey, I used to live just like you, and guess what? I found peace with God. And God has already done everything necessary for you to be at peace with him. All you have to do is place your trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, and you too can be reconciled to God and at peace with him.
And sometimes I think we make things really complicated. You know, we have, we have evangelism training classes. I have taught them. I will probably teach more of them. But we make it, that, you know, this six-week deal where we talk about, well, this is what the message of the gospel is. This is how you turn a conversation towards spiritual things. And this is how you might point somebody uh, to Jesus. And this is how to lead someone in prayer for their salvation and so forth. But here's the deal. The gospel is really, really, really simple. It's this. We were at war with God whenever we sinned against him. And because we are sinners, a good and holy God has to judge us for sin both now and in eternity. But God also loves us and wants us to be at peace with him. So he sent Jesus, the sinless second person of the Trinity, to die on the cross in your place and to take your penalty, to die your death for you. And his death established peace between us and God and made it so that all who trust in Jesus' death escape from death and hell and sin that leads to those things. And then God raised Jesus from the dead to show that sin and death had been conquered. And to tell us that we who believe in Jesus would also conquer sin and death. And it's a simple message that leads to a simple question. Have you been reconciled to God? If you die as you're going to, are you sure where you will go? If not, you need to believe in Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, who came to die your death, take your sin away from you, and make peace between you and God. And it's also a message that carries with it a ministry. And again, I think we make evangelism really way too complicated. It's simple. It's telling people what happened to you. How you became a new creation. It also leads me to some questions, and I'll close with this. If you look at this text, you see Paul describing his motivation for what he does for his ministry and why he's doing it. And I think one of the things that is most important as we consider the ministries that we have is this. What's your motivation for what you do? What's your motivation for what you do? Because as, as God said to the prophet Samuel when he's standing evaluating Jesse's sons, which one will be king? He tells Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. What's your motivation for what you do in the Christian life? Is it to please God? Is it to benefit other people? Is it because God's love so controls you that you cannot do otherwise? Or is it for the exaltation of yourself? What's your motivation for what you do? Second question, if we believe what the Bible says here about the power of the gospel, if we believe what the Bible says about the power of the gospel, read it with me. If anyone is in Christ, new creation, 
why don't we go into the world with it? If we believe, here's the thing. God is sovereign. He's already promised us that there are going to be people who believe, right? And he's already told us that if anyone does believe, they're going to become a new creation. So we have been given a job to which we are guaranteed success. Because it's not based on our technique. It's not based on our eloquence or our ability to get the gospel across to somebody. It's based on the power of God who works through his message to transform people's lives. If we really believe this stuff, then why aren't we carrying it into the world? Last question. Are you reconciled with other people? To the extent you're able, are you, are you reconciled with other people? Because here's the thing. It is absolutely incongruous for a person who has been reconciled to God to be at war with lots of other folks. Amen? Uh, so we, especially in the church, ought not be at war with each other, right? And in our homes, between husbands and wives and parents and children, we ought not be at war with each other. Because God has already solved in Christ the greatest conflict we have and has taken away our sin from us. And we need to live in obedience to Christ. And if God is making peace between people and, and him, then ought not we be making peace between one another? You need to be reconciled with anybody in the church. If so, take the steps that you need to take. You need to be reconciled with someone in your family. Take the steps you need to take. Go to them. Talk to them. Make peace. You need some advice? Need some help? Jim and I are in the elders and deacons, and we'll help you. Make peace. God has made peace with you. Make peace with everyone else. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would fill our church and our hearts with your peace. That those who have been reconciled to you would carry forth a message of reconciliation that is lived out in our homes and in our church that those who have the message of reconciliation would exercise their ministry of reconciliation going into the world with the powerful gospel that transforms people into new creatures. And Father, I pray that we would have deep appreciation, deep understanding, and deep longing for the love of Christ that controls us, who really control us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.